On this episode of War No Dam Experts, we share part two of the Native American culture and influence in Great Falls, Montana, and the conversation focuses on rodeos and powwows. Best damn podcast, the best damn town. You want to get up, get ready to get down. Welcome to the greatest damn town in Montana. I'm Maricela Hazard. I'm Rebecca Ingham. And we're no damn experts. No, we're not. And we're in the podcast studio, the one that Jason designed. Yes. So there's uh, noise or soundproofing, adjustments to how our mics are being held or in front of our faces. Positioned. We've been taught how to speak at the towards the mic which was new and also just how to speak in general yeah so still working on that so we sound amazing that's what we're trying to say we sounded good last episode when we had Matt and jolene on and then the episode prior where it was just rebecca and me in the studio where we talked about the walking tours in great falls unfortunately and fortunately we're going to share part two of the Native American culture and influence in Great Falls, Montana, which we recorded with James Parker Shield. It was an amazing first episode that you've already, if you haven't already listened to, go back, find it, listen to it. It's episode 14, Buffalo oh, Don't Jump. There we go. We've got this episode that's coming up, which was recorded at our kitchen table here in the office, which is not... The custom designed studio that we're taking, we're we're coming to you from now. So we're gonna sound like. Can I say it? We're not gonna, <laughs> compared to what we're gonna we sound, sound different. We'll sound different. There you go. We'll just say lower quality. And I'm sorry, James. More authentic to being out in the real world. <laughs> Rebecca's gonna spin it in a positive way. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that when Jason did hear the original recording, he wanted to knock our heads together and be like, "How dare you even." press record in these in this uh, situation or circumstances how dare you cause such violence to my ears <laughs> exactly but during this episode that we have coming up jason tried to do his best in editing the way you know he could after the production so it's going to sound better than episode 14 but not as good as our prior two but and here's the deal you're not here because we're expert co- podcasters we know that yeah we also know you're not here because this is a, you know, multi-million dollar operation. So, without further ado, we're going to give you audio of James Parker Shield, myself, and Maudie talking about the original inhabitants of Great Falls. So, sit back, listen, and enjoy the number three podcast in oh mind. Oh, my God. <laughs> you so we had a board meeting today, and Rebecca told everyone we were number four holding strong, but updated to number three. So obviously they're not listening to us because we're you. expert podcasters. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you're having a good time because that's what you should be doing here, not trying to, you know, become an expert on the community. <laughs> so enjoy this episode, and we will see you next week in the returned podcast studio where we film, well, with another celebrity. We'll record- Major celebrity. Local phenom. So we'll, historic figure. We'll give that teaser at the end of the episode. So enjoy. So one of the questions we often get, and it's probably the 
biggest frustrating question for me is we'll have people who call and they say, well, we want to go to a rodeo and a powwow. As if they just happen all year long, one right after the other. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're on demand. Yeah, you just make one. I've got a guest coming in next week. I'm going to need you to do a powwow. Yeah. They're not connected, first and foremost. I'm going to let our listeners know that the two events are not connected in any way other than they both happen in the state of Montana. But can you share with our listeners a little bit more history about the powwow, the intricacies of what people can experience if people can experience a powwow. And yeah. we do have one here in, in Great Falls on a on a normal year. So I'll shut up and let you talk. Well, you know, powwows are kind of a, uh, a creation of, of modern and changing times for Native Americans. Back in the day when the Indian Wars were winding down and they were actually confining uh, natives to, to reservations. Basically, everything about your culture was outlawed. You know, they would put your kids in boarding schools or mission schools, and they would not be allowed to speak their own language. They would uh, have to have their hair cut, their braids were cut off, and they had to change their clothing. The adults were under similar pressure not to remain native, but to become uh, part of the greater society as quick as possible. So there was a lot of changes that went on virtually overnight. You uh, were confined to a reservation. You were basically a prisoner of war. You, uh, you would be chased down and shot by soldiers if you left the reservation. You'd be brought back in chains if you were alive. And in the case of the Apache, they were taken from their original homeland you know, in Arizona and New Mexico, loaded on boxcars, just like in that movie Geronimo, and they were taken to Florida in a climate that basically killed a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And they remained prisoners of war for 27 years before they were brought back and allowed to live in their, their homeland in Arizona and New Mexico. And in Montana, you know, some of the same history, but those early reservation days were pretty tough because uh, the buffalo herds had been killed off, so that was your livelihood, your source of food and shelter, and you were being confined and bossed around. And the food that you had was provided by the government. They would buy beef from ranchers and flour, and you had to line up, and they would give you meat. A lot of times that wasn't that great. And the flowers, a lot of times, uh, had little animals had living in it. And you were expected to survive on that, which in a lot of cases, uh, a lot of people starved to death or died. And at the same time, you were still being told you have to adjust and change your, your lifestyle. You have to, you know, become like us. So just a lot of continuous pressure, you know, to, to, uh, to adapt and, and change. And that was the early, that was life on the reservations. Now, there would be your outlets Things that you tried to hold on to, like your 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 uh, belief system, your ceremonies, but in many cases you would have to do those in secret because you would face punishment for doing that. Part of the culture, of course, was dancing or any kind of rituals like that. Once again, you had to do those in secret. It wasn't until uh, you know maybe two or three decades later that, after having been on the reservation for a while people were comfortable with the fact of wanting to see what those natives do, you know, how they live, and those strange, exotic dances they do. And so it became almost like a, almost like your early tourism, you know. People would drive out and they'd hear that the, the Indians were dancing somewhere and they'd want to go see them. And at the same time, 
there was an emerging sport in the West called rodeo. And rodeo, of course, had its start, you know, in roundups, branding cattle, and then young cowboys wanted to show off their skills of riding and roping and wrestling around with cows or whatever. And so that eventually somebody got the bright idea, well, let's start holding some contests, see who are the best cowboys or who, who could rope the best or whatever. And that eventually evolved in, into these categories of events. And so no big surprise that because, you know, natives on the reservation were also being encouraged to become cowboys because horse herds and then some cattle herds were being developed on reservations and the government was wanting them to adopt more of that, you know, wanting them to be farmers and ranchers. And so I think because of that close proximity between um, ranchers and that cowboy culture and all that, no big surprise that Indian dancing started to take on within the, the, the framework of rodeos. So to this day, I'm always struck by the fact that road, uh, powwows are kind of structured like rodeos. You have, you have the grand entry, which rodeos have too. And then you have different categories of events. So do powwows. You have different kinds of dancers, different kinds of outfits, and they have their specific time period on schedule. So did, I don't even know how to ask this question well. Was there Indian princesses? <laughs> <laughs> I know the answer to that, but I wanted to kind of delve a little bit more into, did each tribe have their own kind of dance or their own kind yeah. of... Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I think to a certain extent, once again, I like to always use the, the rodeo as, as kind of an example. You know, I don't think that <clears throat> cowboys in Wyoming or Nebraska were the same as cowboys in Texas or New Mexico because those cowboys that were further south were heavily influenced by Mexicans. And so, you know, the, the culture of, of the Mexican cowboy, the vaqueros, is what drove a lot of the development of the cowboy culture in, you know, places like Texas and New Mexico. And then somewhere along the line, when you start developing event kinds of uh, things like rodeos, you, you kind of get a blending of that northern and southern Mexican and non-Mexican style. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same way, I think, with, with Indian powwows. You have a lot of different uh, cultures uh, represented in powwows, but at the same time, there's some blending uh, where cultures were shared. You know, so some of the dances that were only done by certain tribes, you know, way back in, you know, the early 1800s, eventually were adopted and uh, carried on by other tribes further away. And that's that's kind of a uh, cultural truism among Native Americans. Is they're big on trade. They're big on gifting. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, big on sharing. So it's no surprise that that there are aspects of, of Native culture that have been picked up by one tribe and adopted, and then maybe even improved on. Who knows? But that's expected, right? It's not thought of as an insult for someone to, hey, I love this, right. the way you're dancing. We want to do it too. Like, Yeah, of course, the, the tribes that think that they started that particular dance originally themselves think that no one else can do it as good as they can. Can people just come and watch a powwow? Because they're no. ceremonial dances. Uh, you know, we take prisoners. You have to participate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and if you're not a willing participant, then you're a captive. So, yeah, there you go. You know, 
No, no. <laughs> no, the fact of the matter is uh, tribes are, you know, Native people are very hospitable, uh, more than willing to share their culture because they really want other people to understand them. And they, and they, they actually like uh, people to come and watch. And as uh, long as you don't do foolish things like just take pictures of everybody in sight and or if there's a special uh, event going on that involves uh, you know some spiritual people uh, you're not supposed to take any pictures at all okay and then you just don't run up and grab somebody's feathers or outfit and tell them how beautiful it is and you're just swooning you know because that's kind of rude mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of common sense I mean, it's the same kind of stuff that I think non non-indians would expect from other people visiting them you know if uh, you were at an Oktoberfest and somebody comes over and says, holy cow, you guys drink a lot of beer. Is that, is that who you are? <laughs> Let me take a picture of you drinking beer. You know, acting stupid. <laughs> I was at the First People's Buffalo Jump and there was a Native American in full dress and he was dancing. And I came at the tail end and I never you found know, the on an individual performance. You know, with, uh, you know, at powwows, you know, in events like that, you know, quite often you'll, you'll see, you know, non-natives and some of them will have cameras mm-hmm. and they'll approach you. You know, I've been approached. I like you out there. You know, did you mind if I take a photo? Well, that's the right thing to do. Ask. Mm-hmm. You know, some some people don't mind. Others say, no, I don't, I don't really want to take pictures. But uh, most of them will say, sure. Okay. You know, and uh, just stay out of the way when they're dancing. You know, don't get out there and try to compete. Can, can you? <laughs> I'll, I'll end must have been, been practicing a long time yeah. in secret. Well, no, actually, there's a uh, you know up, up in the northern plains as well as down in the southern plains, you know, uh, where they have the powwows. Like I said before, powwows are segmented into different dance categories and different things that go on. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, you'll hear the announcers say, "Intertribal, everybody dance." Well, that includes anybody. Ooh, some of us shouldn't. That means you just get out there and walk around in your street clothes. Dance. Like, if I'm out there dancing, and Rebecca spots me, and they say intertribal, you know, she can get out there and come walk around with me and visit. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it it gives, uh, you know, Native Americans that are not dancing the opportunity to get up and dance with their friends and relatives, you know, get around. And they don't even have to dance. You just walk around and visit. That's what they do most times, just chat. And then... Uh, They'll do that for maybe one or two songs, and then that go back into their regular program. You okay. Know, but you can always get out there when they say intertribal, and that, mean, that means non-natives as well. Now, another component of powwows, and I'll share one of the coolest things that, and I had to bring it up because it's James, one of the coolest things about classy basketball tournaments for me growing up was the opportunity to start district divisionals and sometimes state with uh, drums from whatever tribe we were playing with at the tournament. But then also during the championship game, there would be a presentation of Starkwilds. And so such an amazing event to always be part of. For me, for four years of high school and then in the band during junior high, to be able to witness this and to see it still goes on today is super cool. So it's not, young kids learn early on that it's not just a bunch of banging on drums. There's music that goes into it, songs you have to learn. So we share with our listeners a little bit more about the drumming, the music, and 
maybe yeah. even Stark Welts? Well, I'll start with the drumming and singing because that's an important point. I can't remember how long ago it was, maybe about 10 years ago, was the 25th anniversary of the Lewis and Clark Festival. Okay. And I was contacted by their committee, and they wanted me to be on their committee that year because they said, James, it's the 25th anniversary. And ordinarily, every year, they would have it at the Lewis and Clark uh, Tribute Center outside. And they would pretty much usually have the same things. They would have black powder shoots, and uh, they would have uh, you know a bunch of old rifles, and then they'd have Lewis and Clark impersonators, and they would have you know two or three teepees set up and call it Indian Village. You know, it was actually just a drive-through. <laughs> a small <laughs> so, <village>. yeah. <laughs> so it was all right. You know, it had ice cream and cake, and I take my kids to it every year. Mm-hmm. And but for the twenty-fifth uh, anniversary. They really wanted to put on a big show, they, they, and so they moved it to Pierce uh, to Gibson Park, a lot more space, and right in the city, so that meant more people would be there to, to, to uh, take part in it. And they wanted, then they said, we especially want to pay, uh, pay close attention and and get more involvement from Native Americans, and so they wanted my my input, and I I told them I said, well, I said. You know, I said, I've been to a lot of them over the years. I said, they, they kind of follow the same format. I said, which is okay. I said, but if you want to make a big show out of it and you really want to make a big show out of the native part, I said, here's my recommendations. I said, number one, I said, with your TP village, I said, I would make it a more unique experience by showing that not all native dwellings are the same. And especially when it comes to even teepees. I said, in fact, I said just a month ago, I said, I was over on the other side of the mountains in uh, Washington. And I said, I went to a, a powwow on the Colville Reservation. And now their culture over there, a lot of times built their teepees out of reed mats. I said, I've never seen one. I've never been in one. And I said, I got the experience to go in that. I said, the guy that made it explained it to me. I said, I asked a lot of questions. And, and I also found it interesting that where we put the fire in our teepees in the center on the ground, they actually dug a pit. It was like a uh, sunken bedroom, uh, oh. be- uh, sunken living room. Yeah. And so you sat around on a on the the, the earth ledge, you know, and then the, the rest of it was dug down. Oh. So when you walked in, you were like some basement level, mm. and then you'd go sit down. I said, I thought that was a real cool uh, design. I said, and then he explained to me that they used reeds because, of course, that's what they have over there. They have a lot of them. That's just stuff just growing naturally. But in the summertime, those reeds will actually shrink. And so that lets air come through. Whereas in the cold uh, weather, the reeds expand and it, and it closes off the, the air from coming in. Built-in air conditioning. Yeah. And the way they laid their mats, they would start at the bottom, just like you'd roof, you'd roofing, you know, shingles. And they would layer them to where... When it rains and snows, it runs off. Okay. And I thought, dang, those Indians are smart. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, I was telling him, I said, so that's one example of a different type of teepee that works uh, for those, those people over there. I said, we use buffalo hides over here. I said, and I said, some tribes paint their teepees, some don't. I said, now Northwest in Blackfeet country, they have a lot of painted teepees. I said, so I would get one of those to come down. I would get one of these Thule uh, mat uh, teepees. And and if you could, I said, you know, get ones that are made out of planks. I said, uh, 
some tribes further east back in Minnesota, I said, the Chippewas there, I said, they used birch bark. Mm -hmm. I said, as, as a way of layering on the outside of their teepees. So, so they went along with that idea. And then I also told them, I said, you know, I said, one of the, uh, the, one of the cultural aspects, I said, that has carried on in Indian country, especially up here, is what we call hand game, also known as stick game. I said, it's a, it's a gambling game. I said, that's been going on for thousands of years. And I said, and Indian communities, I said, including here in Great Falls, still play it. I said, people, I said, a lot of non-Indians have never even seen it or even heard of it and don't even know what you're talking about. I said, we could bring that in. I said, and since it's a gambling game, which is outlawed, you know, Montana, <laughs> uh, we don't want to get in trouble. I said, we could, we could uh, do this as a demonstration game. I said, and then invite people to play and we teach them how to play it. They could actually sit in and play it. And so they went along with that idea. Mm. And so I got a hold of my mom up in Rocky Boy, and they brought down uh, two teams. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I uh, recommended that they went along with was I said, you know, when people go to powwows, I said, they're so enthralled with the colorful dancers and the outfits and the dancers' movement that they overlook what's the most important part. I said, that Indian people understand. I said, the center of the universe is the drum. I said, they might stop by and kind of say, what are they saying? You know, those words or gobbledygook or what? You know? I said, but they soon move on to going back and watching dancers. I said, they don't really understand what they just missed. I said, so I would bring in a drum group and put them up on the, uh, the main stage there, what they call it, the, the shell. Yep, the band yeah, shell. The band shell. And have them put on basically performances of different types of songs and have them explain these different types of songs when they're used, when they're sung, and um, whether that has words to it or if they're just what they call vocables, okay. sounds. And uh, they said, oh, can you bring one? I said, yeah, so I'll get a hold of my nephew. So he brought his, group, his drum group down, and that's exactly what they did. People were sitting there. Where usually they, they listened to the symphony. Right. You know, <laughs> there's a bunch of people who were sitting around listening to a drum group. And he would explain, you know, the songs before they, they started singing them and drumming. That's a, that's a good way of, of educating people. They were cornerstone to my growing up and, you know, part of the ceremony for basketball tournaments for where well, I grew a, up. Yeah, that's a whole... I mean, there's there's nothing like Class C basketball, nothing. period. <laughs> we I could mean, devote you, an entire yeah. episode to Class C basketball. Yeah. If you want to die <laughs> and you aspire to go to heaven, <laughs> just pray that you got tickets to a Class C basketball tournament where oh. you can die on yeah. the game-winning shot. Yeah. You know. Nothing better. Yeah. In fact, when Alyssa and I go back to the office, I just got my copy that I had to order from Amazon or someplace like that where Box Elder played Arlie, another native team from the Flathead Reservation for the state Class C championship and in my mind, that's one of the all-time greatest basketball games ever. And I just want to watch it over and over and over. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, yeah. that was a, that was a great year yes, for Class well, C boys oh, yeah. basketball. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, they won two or three state championships. And I wrote a column years ago uh, when I was a college student. Uh, I was a columnist for the Great Falls Tribune. And they said I could write anything I wanted on Indian history and culture. And one of the columns I wrote, which was during basketball season, 
I had just come back that weekend of watching the Conrad Cowboys play the Browning Indians. And basically I wrote my column that it was Cowboys and Indians all over again. <laughs> and that I couldn't help but compare it with those old Western movies I used to watch when I was a kid with the, you know, they'd show the Indians just running around, you know, attacking the wagon train with their hit and run tactics, speed and all that. And I said, and that's pretty much what the Browning Indians did to the Conrad mm. Cowboys. They just ran circles around them. They played fast. You know, they shot fast. And then they pressed them on defense. I said, now the Conrad Cowboys, on the other hand, I said, just like those white settlers crouching behind the wagons, they would walk the ball up slowly. <laughs> the coach would call out what offensive set they were going to be in. And they would do it. They would work the ball around for the best shot possible while these pesky Indians were trying to steal the ball. <laughs> no big surprise. <laughs> the Indians won. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exciting basketball. If you want to watch exciting basketball, go watch any Indian team play. They play up-tempo. What uh, in the NBA they now call, there's that phrase, uh, I forgot what kind of ball they call it. But anyway, Indians invented it. Yeah. I mean, they've been playing fast and furious the run and gun. Run and gun. That's what it was called, run and gun. And in Montana, for many decades, non-Indians and non-Indian coaches, when they would use the word run and gun, they would use it disparagingly. Oh. You know, like those Indian teams don't have any discipline. They don't have any plays. They just get out there and throw the ball around and run. And they don't really have any plan of how to win the game. Run and gun, that's their plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, that kind of basketball is what everybody wants to play. Yeah. Of course, I was able to, but Indians been doing a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but back to your point, the other thing that was important, kind of a shift in Montana, was when I was living up at the Rocky Boy Reservation, and I was actually announcing their basketball games, their home games. Mm-hmm. They did which, what was mentioned that a lot of Indian teams did, which is if you went and played on a reservation and it was their home game, well, they would sing the flag song, you know, what Indians call the flag song, which is an Indian song and with a drum group. And in Rocky Boy, half the players on the team were part of the drum group. So they would come over in their uniforms. I would hold the mic over the drum and they would sing the flag song, which is simply put the way that we pay homage to the American flag because a lot of our people fought in wars for that flag. And so it's, uh, it's kind of like our Star Spangled Banner, I guess. Well, eventually some non-Indian schools uh, complained to the Montana High School Association that they were being intimidated when they went to reservation schools to play and they would be banging on this drum and singing and this you know, things that they could understand. It was, you know, it was intimidating some folks. And so the Montana High School Association was having a hearing about banning the Indian flag song at basketball games. It ended up that myself and uh, the superintendent from Browning, who was not Indian, went to that hearing and testified. And basically we explained, you know, what the Indian flag song is and that it's not meant to intimidate anybody. It's, it's you know, basically uh, a respected flag. 
and that there's whatever there are, are there any other complaints about being intimidated or you know where people you know going up to you threatening you or anything like no there's just this drumming and singing just kind of bother them and so the Montana High School Association its great wisdom chose not to ban the Indian flag song so it's still used today I got a little frustrated listening to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing I think that was helpful, too, was another custom that you know, Rebecca uh, mentioned was the, uh, the you know, the, the, the star quilts. When you go to basketball tournaments and you have Indian teams, you will see them bring out star quilts. And probably the best example is in Poplar up on the Fort Peck Reservation. They will actually surround the court on the floor. They will lay star quilt after star quilt. And these are handmade and they're beautiful, huge star quilts. And they will then present those to the coaches oh. of the other teams. And you also see them at those tournaments when they want to honor maybe their own coach or one of their players or you know, because those those star quilts are basically meant as a, a way of honoring somebody for great achievements hmm. or a milestone in their life. When my son graduated from Highway High School, which is an all-non-Indian school up in the Highway Mountains here, I had a, a star, quilt, uh, star quilt ceremony for him at the graduation. And I, I gave a star quilt to his football coach because they took state in football. I gave one to his basketball coach because they took state in basketball. And then I gave one to the superintendent of schools. Everybody in the audience appreciated that. You know, because those are opportunities to, to share your, your culture with you know, non-Indians. So you talked about, I'm changing gears completely because yeah. I'm like a rabbit that way thinking, oh, I want to talk about this now. You talked about the pemmican. Did I say that right? No, I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, as a traditional food. What are some other traditional foods? Because one of the other things we don't have here in Great Falls is like a Native American cafe where you can get traditional food. And we, we're often asked, that, what's the food of Great Falls? Well, Butte has the pasty, and Actually, we don't really ha- we have beef, yeah. I guess. But well, you should just jump on it, you know. And <laughs> Capitalize lay, on it. No, no, lay claim to Indian fry bread because there there was a couple of different. In fact, my cousin was one of the people. He had a little cafe, and they served Indian tacos, and those, of course, started out as Indian food, but then they've been taken over by non-Indians, you know, so now you can go to a lot of different cafes and they'll have Indian tacos or fry bread on, on the menu. Meanwhile, the people that started them are no longer in business. <laughs> you know, but you will find them uh, in the summertime, uh, an Indian stand uh, at the fairgrounds on the midway that sells Indian tacos. Okay. A good friend of mine uh, has that stand. He, he makes good Indian tacos and fry bread, chili, whatever. And you can, you know, you can get it in different places. And of course, that's been more more commercialized. But there's a lot of different dishes that are tied to that particular tribe or, you know, and its customs. Uh, for example, um, my tribe, the Little Shell Chippewa and the Turtle Mountain Chippewas, every New Year's you make a dish called bullets. And you eat that with either bannock, which is our traditional bread, or you can eat it with fry bread. But it basically consists of making like these large oversized meatballs with hamburger, some diced up onion. You can put a little rice in there if you want to. Uh, you have some beef broth, you create a suet with some flour and you put some rice in that suet along with big chunks of chopped up tomato, I mean, uh, potatoes mm-hmm. and you boil all that. 
and that's called bullets. And it's our tradition that you eat it on New Year's. People used to go to each other's houses and go and eat, eat, and eat. And then you finally, when it got really late, you'd end up some house where you'd have a party. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of dancing and imbibing. <laughs> yeah, so. Bullets. But, yeah. And, you know, a lot of different tribes, including up here, have their own special dishes. Would you find more traditional native foods at powwows or fairs and festivals that are usually held on the reservation versus not? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, just like, once again, if you go to a rodeo or an Oktoberfest, well, you know what, at Oktoberfest, you're going to get some brats. Yeah. You know, Beer. because, yeah, and people are going to be wearing some Germanic-looking outfits, you yeah. know, lederhosen and all that, right? So it's no different. You go to a powwow or any kind of a, a native event, that's when you're going to have uh, offerings of different, you know, food. And, of course, vendors that sell beadwork or clothing and other items. You've have a calendar of Indian events. Yeah. You know, so that you know when those are. Powwows are easy. Th- those are actually on the Internet. Yeah. And uh, uh, usually you start around the first weekend in June is the Red Bottom Celebration. Uh, over in Fraser, Montana, on the Fort Peck Reservation. Then you can go like Fourth of July powwows down in Northern Cheyenne, uh, Fourth of July powwow on the Flathead Reservation at Hurley. And every weekend after that, there is a powwow somewhere for the most part, because that's what we call powwow season, summertime. Okay. When it turns cold, and yeah, we quit and go home. Okay. These are the basketball games. Yeah, there you that's, go. What, that's what the winter season is for. Exactly. You touched on it, Native American beadwork, a lot of jewelry. I think there's even seen gloves and... Oh, yeah, there's... But that's that's a traditional skill set that... Yeah, and, and of course, the beadwork was... That comes out of traditional design and, and, and decorating of items. A lot of people in this area of in, the Indian world did uh, with quilts, porcupine quilts that were then steamed or, you know, run over steam or heated or hot water and then flattened out with your teeth and dyed with, you know, colors from different plants that would make different colors. And then you would take the, the sharp part of the quill and poke it into the buckskin and loop it in there. And that predated, that was replaced or, or you know, sometimes for a great deal of time by beads that were brought here by traders. They soon discovered, oh, you know, we got this new product that could, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to go through all that headache, of, you know, killing a porcupine, which can be dangerous, <laughs> heating up the quills, doing it through your teeth and dying and all that. You got this one-step product called bead. Yeah. And they would make glass beads and they'd come up, they, that would be one of the trade items, uh, especially during the fur trade era, uh, they, would, they would trade with the tribes. So when they used when natives used quills, did they s- still call it beading or did they call it quilling? I don't think they called it anything other than what they called it in their own language. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the modern interpretation is quill work and beading, you know, right. but they each had their own language and their own words for whatever they call it. For all I know, it could be like poke and hurt, you know, when it was quill work. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was just all part of the, the, the growing economy of, of trade you know, between Indians and non-Indians. And as I was talking with Alyssa the other day, 
I said, you know, back in the, the fur trade era, people don't really realize how big that was. It was, in my terms, the Microsoft of its day. Uh, a, a lot of fortunes were made uh, in the fur trade business, and, and a lot of communities were established like Fort Benton. This concludes the second part of our conversation with James Parker Shield about the Native American culture and history in Great Falls, Montana. We'll share the third part of this conversation in March of 2021, so stay tuned. We are no damn experts as the recorded claims from Great Falls, Montana, covering what you need to know about this amazing damn town. Damn, that felt good. On next week's episode of We're No Damn Experts, we're bringing in a Great Falls icon, someone who will likely have a statue erected to them to talk to us about the early beginnings of Western Art Week, which will begin here in Great Falls in March. We're No Damn Experts was produced by Great Falls Montana Tourism with original music from the best damn musician, Joel Corda.